0: A possible criminal liability rests on those who captured the runaways but due to negligence allowed them to escape again. Other earlier codes are more lenient in punishing the accomplices assisting the illegally holding no, and illegally holding runaways. According to the code of Lipit Ishtar circa eighteen seventy BCE, he who hid fugitives was obliged to give a slave for a slave or to pay a high compensation to the owner of the slave. While in the laws of Ishnuna circa nineteen thirty BCE He who detained a fugitive for a period of time longer than one month and did not return him or her to the owners was charged with theft. The Middle Assyrian laws before 1070 BCE dealt with wives who ran away from their husbands. The harborer was punished financially, but what is more, if his wife helped the fugitive woman, both could face mutilation by cutting off their ears. Since we do not have any Neo-Assyrian code, we are left with no other option but to attempt to interpret what can be gleaned from the surviving relevant letters. An ambiguous Picture emerges of what legal procedures the Assyrian administration enforced upon the captured runaways and their accomplices. Two letters shed some light on accomplice liability. A report on a village manager who assisted the escape to Apumu in Subria of two servants, presumably slaves who belonged to Nabukinu-Ur, governor of Tilly, the village manager was arrested and was to be punished, but the letter does not specify what kind of punishment was to be administered. Similarly, a certain Bala'u u ikei who gave shelter to runaway slaves was required to hand them over to his son, a possible owner, immediately, and to stand trial before the king himself. The letter says nothing about the punishment to Balu'u Ikbi, also in this case. Another unresolved question is whether he who hosted the runaways acted without having any idea of whom he sheltered in his house, or whether he actively participated in the execution of the crime. The involvement of the king in the case of Bala'u Iqbi However, may attest to the importance attached to such criminal acts of assisting those who committed such sins. As far as, as for the runaway slaves, it seems that those who were captured were treated as utmost brutality, no, with utmost brutality. Such a conclusion can be drawn not only from the corpus under study, but also from Esarhaddon's letters to the god Asser. As for all of the runaway fugitives who had abandoned their owners and fled to the land Subria, I cut off their hands and removed their noses, eyes, and ears. We can only speculate whether the punishment meted out to the runaway slaves in Serbia was an explanatory way of handling the captured runaways according to Assyrian law. Aserhaddon's brutality may be explicable by his desire to teach the Subrian king iktesip a lesson and to solve the problem of him protecting fugitives once and for all, particularly when after the murder of Cherub, Subria also became a safe haven for political opponents of Aserhaddon. The letters do not always explicitly assign the fugitive to any specific social or juridical category, but it seems probable that status and other factors affected how the Assyrian administration treated the captured runaways. Some letters imply that the main goal of the administration was not only to prevent future escapes by punishment, but also to make as much use as possible of the captured runaways as a source of labor. Bell the governor of Upat, reports to Sargon on different matters relating to the area of Upat and Uzaza. He also complains that his carpenters who ran away. The king needs them back in Der obviously to work on his new capital. The governor captured them, but one of the carpenters died and the other ran away again. What can we decide from this evidence? First, the leniency on the part of the state is strictly no punishment seems to have been meted out, at least not such as to prevent another escape. Second, these men are not simply ordinary workers, but skilled carpenters, who despite committing a crime are strongly needed just because of their ability. We can only speculate whether the carpenters deliberately risked their lives and status as they were unique and in demand within the state. If so, they must have known from their personal experience or of their colleagues that even if captured, the governor would turn a blind eye to the crime. It is understandable that Assyrian administration took preventative measures to stop, or at least to reduce the number of escapes. Slaves bore identification marks, which made it easier to identify and to capture them. Marduk Sepik Zeri, a Babylonian, recommended a group of scholars to Aserhaddon, among whom there was a gifted exorcist named Iah, who was a refugee from Assyria and a slave, since he had marks on his face with writ and wrists, but there is no evidence that fugitives from other social strata were branded like this in uh, this or in other ways. To prevent deportees from fleeing while transporting them from one place to another, their number had to be controlled. When someone was missing, or if there was some discrepancy in the documentation, the king was immediately notified. A royal bodyguard to was dispatched back to the starting point at no, with the task of verifying the number, and if needed, dispe- uh, and if needed, and if possible, of bringing the missing people back, we can cautiously assume that there were some independent inspections which aimed at checking the number of missing people against the ones, the one previously reported. <clears throat> another way of preventing people among escaping no people from escaping to another country where the international treaties stipulated by the assyrian kings were the international treaties stipulated by the assyrian kings some of them have been preserved others are known from secondary sources The oldest treaty dealing with fugitives was concluded between Samsu-Adad V and his Babylonian counterpart Marduk-Zakur-Sumi. The clause reads, The king shall indicate to him the fugitives who fled from Assyria to Babylonia. Hence, we can conclude that the Assyrian king was to prepare a list of any fugitives who were to be deported back to Assyria from Babylonia. The treaty, or rather loyalty oath, which Asser Narari V drew up with Mati ilu king of Arpad, is the only known interstate agreement from the eighth century, which pertains to runaways. In this document we read, You shall not conceal or protect any chariot fighters or cavalrymen, nor send him to another country. As it can be seen, the clause does not concern ordinary fugitives, but potential deserters from the elite of the Assyrian army. In conclusion of such a clause into the treaty may indicate that desertion might have been a problem at the time of general political turmoil during the reign of Assur-Narari nirari V. On the international arena, the real concern of Assyrians was the possible alliance between Arpad and the Ararshan kingdom, which was attempting to expand into northern Syria. Therefore, it seems reasonable to assume that the demand of not sending the fugitive charioteers and cavalrymen to another country meant that Aser Narari V wanted to block the desertions to Urartu. Esarhaddon's letter to the god Asser describes the conquest of Subria, points to the existence of a treaty between Assyria and Urartu. Here, Esarhaddon narrates how he dealt with the captured Urartian runaways. Contrary to the brutal treatment of the fugitives from Assyria, the king was lenient towards the Arartu or, or the Arartians. According to the settlement with Rusa II, it was the Arartian king who was to mete out punishment for them. As Aserhaddon himself states, in order to keep the treaty and because of the truth and justice the great gods gave me, I inquire, questioned, investigated, and denounced those people. I did not hold back a single Arashian fugitive, and not one escaped. I returned them to their land. There is no doubt that the campaign against Subrio was primarily aimed at destroying political opposition against Assur-Haddon and his sons. Any successful action taken by the Assyrian king in Subria depended on the Orartian cooperation because the conspirators could easily flee to Arartu, where we can assume that Rusa Rusa's task was to block access to his own country, although there are no clues about his real role in this alliance. It should be borne in mind that Rusa may still have hosted Esarhaddon's brothers at his court. The letter from Samas Sumu Akin to an Assyrian called Samu-Beli-Lazmi harks harks back to a treaty which has not been preserved between Aserhaddon and Ertak of Elam. After a period of hostilities, Ertak's reign is characterized by a thaw in Elamite relations with Assyria. In 673 BCE, Elamite and Gudian mes- messengers came to Nineveh offering peace and friendship. In this letter, Samas Sumu Akukin admonishes Salmu Beli Lasmin to obey the treaty by sending him fugitives. Among them was a former Elamite refugee, Aya Ar, and his family. His fate may be indicative of how a changing political situation affected the status of fugitives who could never feel safe and secure. Asher Haddon's, no, Adi, the so-called Succession Treaty was a sworn oath of loyalty in favor of the ruling dynasty aimed at preventing a rebellion against the successors of the king. As such, it imposed certain obligations on those who might have uncovered the plot. The recipients of the Ad- Adi was among others obliged to seize the fugitive conspirator and if captured himself by the opponents of uh, Assurbanipal, he was supposed to try to escape and inform him about the forthcoming threat Paragraphs related to fugitives show that Aserhaddin wanted to avoid the escape of political opponents beyond the fugitives beyond the borders an act which had happened after the murder of his father. These treaties were in force throughout different periods of the existence of the Assyrian Empire. They were stipulated between Assyria and its vassal states, as well as with independent political entities. When the empire was at war, it willingly welcomed fugitives from hostile countries. Some fugitives found safe haven beyond Assyria, but others had to live on the verge of society within its borders under constant threat of being recognized, captured, and punished. Those hiding were faced with the dilemma of how to avoid being detained and, at the same time, how to secure their livelihood. We know short of nothing about their fate. The strategies they applied to survive and the way they operated in a new social environment nor about their relations with their families and kinsmen. Runaways became gang members who perpetrated violence against innocent people. They robbed and victimized local communities within the empire. Written by an unknown author, we learn the name of six criminals terrorized, terrorizing the town of nas samas belu u the governor of Arzuina, reports to Sargon on a marauding gang in the mount- mountainous area close to the province of Mazamua where, near the pass of Babiti, a group of criminals fell upon manservants of the chief confectioner. The governor also informs the king about criminals from nearby Arapta and the providence of the palace herald, who banded together with and were raiding and plundering. All this clearly shows that the gangs were able to communicate with one another and to merge into bigger groups, which in turn attracted outlaws from other provinces. The fact that they operated in the inaccessible regions of the Zagros Impediment made this easier to accomplish because fugitives often found safe haven in the mountains. The situation must have been tense since Sargon insisted that Samus Belu capture the criminals. On his part, the governor took countermeasures by commanding troops to keep watch on the unfolding situation. This action resulted in capturing some of the criminals from the house of the chief judge. Some members of the gang acted openly in a brazen way, not even trying to hide their identities. Such behavior Dadi, a high official of the Asher temple in Asher, writes to Asher Haddon or Assurbanipal that two shepherds who had become criminals formed together with ten other offenders, an armed gang. Dadi complained to the king, They do not fear the king they rove about like runaways, and he added that they threatened everyone who dared to oppose them. Whoever comes against us, we will cut down with our bows. A typical modus operandi of criminals, whose only way to survive was collective cooperation, despite the fact that they may have come from various social backgrounds and their reasons of escape varied from person to person we cannot exclude that some of them were desperate from was de- deserters from the army who potentially could in the future become mercenaries